0: hello and welcome my name is mark my name is also mark and welcome to the marketing show just so we're clear we are both called mark that is correct join us each week as we study the principles that make businesses succeed each week we'll dive into a new concept to uncover a new piece of the puzzle
1: we're a couple of marketing guys who are passionate about the craft and always hungry to learn more. So we're excited to have you along for the learning journey. You can subscribe on all major podcast platforms. And if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.
0: And on today's episode, we'll be learning about
1: Data-Driven, data-driven Marketing. Woo-hoo.
0: So, um, Mark, we're gonna put our lab coats on and <laughs> our analytical glasses today and uh, dive into some numbers, facts, and statistics. Oh yeah, I'm keen to get scientific. Hundred percent. So, uh, marketing as a craft, as a, a both a creative art form, but also as a science, um, often uh, has been looked to as you know needing to make sure we're proving the concepts that we come up with. And you know sometimes you can come up with that idea light bulb moment from a gut feeling that has maybe happened in the past. But as we get a, have a lot more access to different data sources and points, it's also really important to see how we can actually draw those insights from facts and figures.
1: Yeah, I, I see there's like there's been three phases of data and there was like a period of time where there was very limited data and it makes things very easy because you sort of just yeah. go on gut feel or what I like to call shoot from the hip. Yeah. Uh, and then there was sort of a bit of data which is super useful and just, you know, really actionable insights. And then we have where we are now, which is just so much data or big data. And I guess what today's episode is, how do you sort of wade through that pool of big data to get the stuff that is actually useful? And then how can you apply that data to do better? Exactly. So if
0: uh, you're listening right now, you ever heard the term, you know, we need to make some, we need to do some research or we need to look at some different facts or make sure that we are making data driven decision. This episode is all for you. Mm. So when we talk about data driven marketing, we're talking we're thinking about marketing decisions or strategies that are pulled from medium to large scale data sources. And uh, the mean to large scale data source refers to having enough of a large sample size so you're making sure you can have some really cool insights and so that the data driven
1: decisions you're making um, are gonna be really uh, valid. Uh, look, I think that's, that's definitely sort of like the, the importance of the scale of the data is really important. I think then the, the next part is uh, how are you gonna use it? So I think there's sort of three ways that you could use it. You could use it to identify new opportunities Uh, You could use it to create consumer centric products uh, and then you could also use it to launch those consumer centric products into the market effectively.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, And to clarify, we're not talking about inspired marketing today. So what we refer to when we talk about inspired marketing, we're thinking about going for a walk in the park, getting a gut feel. Um, And then using that emotional feeling to then go and uh, initiate your strategy. Well, to be fair, sometimes, uh, like we referred to earlier, shooting from the hip can actually be a relatively valid strategy. You do have to sometimes go for it. But for data, it's still not a data-driven approach. And it's important to be really clear that when you do do that, you're not actually taking that data-driven approach.
1: Yeah, I actually think it's important as well that, you know, sometimes you might make a decision from the gut because there is a lack of data available or or you're not clear, but I think that's okay sometimes, but it's good to be able to identify when it is that type of decision versus a data-driven decision. So when somebody asks you about it, you can say, you know what, actually we held hands on this one and we just decided to give it a go.
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And that being said, we can still be creative with the use of data. So, uh, But the biggest thing is that when you are being creative with, with data and data-driven marketing, a lot of the time that creativity comes from the insights you pull out of the data. Um, and you can also get a lot, have a lot of creativity from how you're actually gonna structure that data, how you're gonna test and plan and optimize that data to actually pull really cool insights from.
1: Yeah, well, speaking of that, Mark, I've got a question for you. Yeah. What is an insight? I'm
0: so glad you asked, Mark. <laughs> so um, honestly, I've all, I, when I started my marketing career, like the term insight came up quite a lot. And to be- As real- it does. As, as it does, right, <laughs> super, super important. And I honestly, I didn't really understand what it referred to, and I like Googled it, and I talked to a lot of people, and I feel like sometimes there's many different interpretations as to what insight means. Um, but the way that I've started to make sense of what insight actually is, and, and how, to, how to develop insight, is that I think that insight is a point from which you take action from the data. So it's what the data means, but most importantly, what you're actually going to do about it. Um, so oftentimes insight is not just the clever thing that's like, oh, it's like a cool comment that they came out of the data. It's like, no, the data means this, we've pulled some really cool insights and we're actually going to do this because of the data.
1: Mm. Yeah. It's so good. Cause I think a lot of people say insight a lot and don't necessarily know what an insight is. Yeah. And they just think that the insight is the fact or the data point, but it's, it's such a good way to think about it. Is it like the insight is what drives the action?
0: 100%. And sometimes when you look at really big data sources, you're, you're trying to be analytical um, when it comes to, to collecting the information. You know, it's easy to get stuck down into just looking at really cool points or really cool facts. But I feel like when you when you approach the data from the beginning of going, we're actually doing it to pull insights to take action. It helps you kind of through that process have a lot of really strong momentum. Mm. And when you, you know, you're you two copies, coffees deep, you've got a, a really strong Spotify playlist going and you're looking at all this really cool data. helps you get through that other side with some really cool kind of key takeouts and things that actually improve your brand and your business.
1: Yeah. I always find as well that like, if you're really driven by insight and action, it's easy to drop off irrelevant pieces of data. So you might find something that's super interesting and you've had your, your couple of cups of Nescafe and you're really, Oh, this is so interesting. But then when you take it back to what are we actually trying to find out? And what do we actually, what action do we want to drive? you might realize that that's super interesting thing. You might just want to keep in the back pocket for later because it's not relevant. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now, Mark, I guess in the spirit of all good uh, marketing show episodes, let's kick off with a quote.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, so the first quote we've got to kick off is um, uh, is that, the in the spirit of science, there really is no such thing as a failed experiment. Any test that yields valid data is a valid
1: test. And that's from Adam Savage from Mythbusters. Mm. I love that because I like Adam Savage's last name. <laughs> so like, like, yeah, I'm Adam and I'm Savage. Uh, but also I like that that idea of approaching it as a science experiment. Yeah. I think it's really cool. And it's also it's okay to like look at a lot of these data points and sometimes turn around and
0: go, actually we either shouldn't do anything because the data actually doesn't actually validate us making a significant change it's also okay for to to try things and then not go well but then
1: use that learning to move forward Mm, it's also a good way to cover up your mistakes oh it was just an experiment (laughs) and it didn't go well we learned from it um but no in all seriousness i think that's really important that sort of oh we tried something and it didn't work um also known as dodged a bullet yep didn't invest too heavily in it Great, I've got another one as well, I, I liked this quote. There's heaps of good quotes around this, this topic. Uh, the future of marketing isn't big data, it's big understanding.
0: Whoa. That's
1: from a guy called Jay Bayer, who I actually hadn't heard of until I found this quote, uh, but he's uh, a self-proclaimed Hall of Fame marketer and trusted advisor to the world's most iconic brands.
0: Yeah, wow, very Check very him cool. out, he's
1: got a few books and things. Yeah, nice. Great, well now that we've got quotes out of the way, why don't we go right on with some stats. Uh, so I've got a few good ones. Uh, first one, companies that inject big data and anal- analytics into their operations show productivity rates and profitability that are 5 to 6% higher than those of their peers. And that's from McKinsey in 2015. So yeah, really important super, super to, to, to be across this stuff. Uh, approximately 2.7 zeta bytes of data exists to date in the world. That's as my a favorite. favorite
0: type of byte.
1: I know, right? Love a zetabyte. Um, but I guess what that says is there's a whole lot of data out there um, for us to tap into. Uh, this one's a little bit more of a practical uh, uh, stat Walmart handles 1 million customer transactions every day. Wow. Yeah. So, um, and all of that is recorded into their database for future analysis. So in terms of big data, Walmart have a lot of it with all those customer transactions, which I'm sure they can pull out some really actionable insights from. Uh, And another one is by using big data analytics, Netflix saves approximately a billion dollars per year on customer retention.
0: That's super, super cool.
1: Yes, and so you think about it, we've got a little bit of an example later on, but the way they're able to sort of tailor the experience for you to stop you dropping out. That, that's sort of the saving that they're getting there.
0: Yeah, really, really cool. Um, and then building from that as individuals, we know that marketing leaders are 1.3 times as likely as mainstream marketers to have a documented data and analytics strategy. Um, that's from Google. So uh, they definitely know a thing or two about data and that's why you should definitely keep listening to this podcast.
1: Yeah, nice. Well, moving right along into the principles, I think the way that we're gonna do this is, Mark, you have uh, some really great sort of upfront uh, sort of how would you collect data, uh, really quick fire points, and then we're gonna have a bit of discussion about the use of them. So why don't you start us off? Yeah, let's get
0: right into it. So when we're talking about Doing data driven marketing, it's hard to kind of think about. It. Like, okay, you're really fired up, like you're really excited to just dig into the numbers. Like, how do you actually go about doing it? So, put mm. a little bit of a quick step by step process to think about going into the into the process. So, let's all have a cup of uh, of Nescafe coffee <laughs> and and dive right in. Um, The first thing that's really important to do is actually define what your problem is and what your problem to solve is. And this upfront exercise is is probably the most important exercise because it helps you frame your approach before you even start looking at any tools. Um, Because we know that once you get really focused into the numbers, you might get swayed into different ways. And having a really, really clear problem that you're trying to solve upfront Will let you be really open to different insights that might actually come out of the data as well.
1: Mm, and that's that action part of uh, of the whole process. If you have that really clear, and the action that you're trying to drive it's going to make the process of collecting data that much uh, more succinct, I guess. Yeah, hundred percent. It's kind
0: of like when you were doing uh, essays at school, and you know your English teachers talk to you about like you know what is like what is the essay question that you're going to ask, and you're like, oh, I don't know why she's spending so much time. On this I just want to write the going to be exciting. Like you find that 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 really important exercise of a really simple sentence frames maybe 400 pages of, you know, amazing uh, exam uh, pages that you're going to write on the essay. And it's really important for that reason um, because it's going to frame the rest of the work that's going to fall out of that. Next key uh, important principle to think about is then, uh, okay, if you define your problems, think about how big do you think your sample size is going to be? Like how much data do you really think you'll need to actually answer that question? Um, A good... Number is to think about getting 30 different responses or different data points however um, That might differ if you're looking at sales data Sometimes you might actually want to think about the time period that you'll need you know Does your industry operate where there'll be different seasonality elements? Do you need to look at something over a really long period of time being really clear and upfront about that at this stage? will help you then try to try to select the right data sources that you either have available with you or do you have to go out and get
1: yeah i think on this one often i find it comes down to like how much how much can we get like what how big a sample size can we build because the often the bigger the better uh but you might also want to think about it in terms of what's the what is the uh size of the impact of the decision you're making or the question you're trying to answer so if if it's a small relatively low impact outcome uh like you know almost like a b testing something and you want some data on which one worked best As an example then you might not need many responses or many a big sample but if it's about making a multi-million dollar decision on what products to launch or or what trend to go after then you might want to have quite a lot of data and a quite a lengthy time period of data to see trends
0: yeah definitely and then building off that um before we even kind of dig into to touch any data yet Um, you actually want to just take a moment and actually just check in with yourself as well. Um, And the reason you want to do that is to see if you're going to have any conscious or unconscious bias. So what we mean by that is that before even touching that data, do you even have a kind of hypothesis already or a, a, a certain thing you think is going to come out of this data to begin with? and if you do and if you're not realizing how strong that might be you might already be framing and trying to answer that answer and find a way to show that solution to be true rather than being open to all the possibilities um, and then also unconsciously as well even if you are if you do have some things that you know you might be trying to solve There might be different points along the way where your different past experiences or even your personal experience with different products or services might influence the way you're going to interpret the data just being aware of that up front would be really really helpful i think a really cool way to action this is that before you even start to look at any of the statistics or the data is actually write down what your assumptions are on a piece of paper and what you think is going to happen Um, and oftentimes just writing it down physically and then putting it away in a drawer um, is really helpful because you've kind of done a little bit of a brain dump, you've cleared your head and you're actually ready to be really open to to all the possibilities that are gonna come across.
1: Yeah, you've done a bit of a purge there, which I like. I, th- I think we've all probably had that experience of, uh, you've maybe been given a piece of work and your your boss or the person who gave you the piece of work already has an idea of what they expect to get out of it. Mm. And then it's quite frustrating because if you're presenting back you know, data and insights, uh, they will start to question you to get back to their hypothesis that they're expecting to get back, and and I guess what you're saying here is that we need to sort of eliminate those biases uh, and those hypotheses up front um, so that we can have a really clear and pure result out of this data analysis.
0: Yeah, definitely, hundred percent, and it's um, it's it's a really important thing that's going to come up throughout the way because oftentimes you know you you might be marketing or running a business that you're not actually the key consumer of that brand or business. And oftentimes, you know, you might actually have personal, conscious and unconscious biases that you don't like a certain product you might launch or, or a thing you're gonna tweak or change because you personally wouldn't use it. And oftentimes, you know, if you're not the key user, you're not the right person to be making that decision as to whether or not you should launch that thing. And oftentimes some of the coolest innovations come out of people not being the core uh, the core user of the product they're marketing, being really open to all the possibilities that might come out, and then serving their customer is something that's really important at the end of the day.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think you can go both ways. You can be someone who isn't the consumer of that product but work on it, and yeah, have that sort of helicopter view that, that can then solve a problem for the customer. Or you can be the person who like, just loves the products that yeah. they sell and, and market. And that's, that can be good as well because you're just sort of like making it better for yourself and there's a win-win there. Um, moving right along, I've got one which is uh, looking at macro trends and micro trends. So what you might want to be aware of is: uh, are there any sort of macro trends, like economic trends or or governmental trends, that you might want to be aware of? That's going to influence the the data that you're seeing. Uh, And then on the same uh, same ticket, the micro trends as well, whether it's in your industry or within the specific category that you operate in, what kind of trends are you seeing um, that you might need to be aware of?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. And then like. It's, it's really interesting right like we at the moment are talking about potentially going into a recession in Australia and it's important to check in you know when you are looking at your your planning uh, you know if those economic cycles really affect your business sometimes for some businesses they do affect your business quite a lot and some businesses are pretty stable throughout those, mm. those that time like if you maybe market a stable product like bread for example people are still gonna need to buy bread um, and it maybe might not affect you but if you're in a different type of industry that is going to get affected by it could be really, really important to consider.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's super interesting to look up like what's impacted during a um, financial recession. Yeah. Uh, there's like, you could do a whole podcast on, on it because there's some weird things that you wouldn't expect that go up in terms of usage uh, as well as things that go down. So yeah, it's quite, quite interesting. Definitely. And sometimes it's also important to
0: consider that during like historical data periods as well. Like you might be looking at something from 10 years ago and you're like, oh my God, we sold so much of this during <laughs> that time, but maybe it was during a boom time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think mining equipment definitely went up uh, significantly during the mining boom for obvious yeah. reasons.
1: It's almost like seasonality, but for the, the whole of society that you operate within yeah, rather exactly than just it. because of weather or whatever it is in your category.
0: Absolutely uh then moving along i think the the, another really important step to look into is uh what data is actually available so now you have at this point you've checked in with yourself you know what data do you actually have already immediately in front of you uh once you've uh, identified that you can then look at to what data you can go out and physically supplement that with Um, and then once you have those two points you can work out if there's any data that you still need And the really important thing is to look at what the distance between what data you can get versus the data you need. Um, And from that, you can start to understand how big that gap will be to consider at what point do you have enough data to just make a call. Mm. Um, And a good good rule is to kind of consider if you have 80% of the data that you probably need, we look at the 80-20 rule, you probably have enough to make a a, uh, data-driven decision. But if it goes below maybe 60-40, it's okay if the gap is still big and you can't get that data. It's just important to draw a line in the sand and understand and make the conscious choice that you're no longer being a data-driven marketer or making a data-driven decision because there's too big of a gap between those two points.
1: Yeah, and as we said up the top, that's okay as well as long as everyone's aware. Yeah, 100%.
0: Yeah. And some of the coolest innovations, I think, probably came from those things. Mm. Just really, it's just important to be aware of it.
1: Totally. So another one is uh, being aware of what data agencies are available to you and then when to use them, but also knowing how to use them. So what we mean by data agencies are companies that are set up specifically to uh, provide data and even some data analysis for you. So when we talk about these agencies, we're thinking Nielsen, Kantar, Millwood Brown, uh, Quantium, uh, even some like Euromonitor, Mintel, all of that kind of stuff. These are all agencies available to you um, to get data. I think you'll have to consider some of these that will have subscription costs uh, associated with accessing this data. So you might wanna go back to your sort of like your 80, 20, like, do you have enough data already or do you need this incremental data? Um, But then also understanding how to cut up that data and how to use it. And I think we've spoken about before, Mark, about being learning a few Excel tips and tricks and becoming a bit of a wizard, because often, you know, from experience you can get uh all this like sales data or home scan data and penetration data and you can have it all on a on a table from nielsen or whoever but sometimes you need to actually then like export that out and then cut it up and make graphs and visualize it whatever you need to do so i think it's about understanding how to get the most out of that data once you've learned how to get it
0: yeah 100 percent and it's you know um sometimes we think about ourselves as marketers as maybe not the biggest Excel nerds, but we, we probably should be some of the mm. biggest Excel nerds out there, whether you're a creative marketer or, or a, a brand manager. It's a super, super important important skill to have. So I know that I personally try to invest quite a few days sometimes just looking up different Excel tips and tricks on mm. on YouTube before I need them. And boy has the pivot table come in handy, oh, all, yeah. <laughs> all the waterfall chart. Um, sometimes they're like using finance tutorials, but it's a really cool skill to have because once you personally can really get immersed in that data, it's not only probably a bit cheaper, mm. <laughs> but it's also really cool for you to have that really strong connection from where you're pulling the insight from. Um, it's also really cool if you're a small business owner, it lets you look at maybe different data sources that you didn't even know you could play with. You know, sometimes some really cool different internal data sources that you can play with it could be uh, sales reports they could be different consumer complaints that have come up and those are things that you can personally go into Excel and play around with and draw some insights from uh, we can also move on to some different external data sources so you could look at maybe some past surveys that you or your brand have done um, and maybe if you're coming in as a brand manager or even a creative person onto to work on a brand or a business You know, looking at some of those past results from maybe, you know, 10, 20 years ago, they might still have some interesting insights in there as well. Uh, You could also potentially look into uh, ABS or census data. I think it's probably one of the most underrated data Mm -hmm. sources in any country is is how cool census data can actually be for big demographic uh, information. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I, I love a uh, ABS um, census data pull. I I weirdly like weird anecdote, but I actually once was looking at it and got s- down such a rabbit hole that I was looking at what were the, the most likely causes of death at certain oh. ages, which you can get through all of the ABS data. And it was very comforting. Yeah. <laughs> because you realize that like your biggest risk, like like you're gonna be fine. Like we're young, like you're gonna be fine. Like you look at the rates and you look at the causes and you're like, ah, we're good. <laughs>
0: Um, and then, I guess the last uh, little uh, data source trick is also to look at YouTube recorded conferences. So, just like um, the latest Travis Scott concert that's been uploaded onto YouTube on someone's phone, a lot of people are recording marketing conferences that they're going to. And oftentimes they have like, you know, under 100 views. But instead of paying $5,000 for a ticket, why not put your feet up, um, have a cup of tea, and, and uh, look at some of the cool data that they might be pulling from the
1: surveys that the people speaking at the conferences might also be just putting out there. Yeah, I, look, that's that's the um that's the rock show concert for for marketing nerds. <laughs> there's, <Woo! laughs> there's those YouTube recorded on a phone sessions. So. I just really want to go to like a marketing
0: conference where like uh, like some like a guest speaker is gonna come out and they're just in the middle of it go, and now I'm gonna crowd surf and then <laughs> jumps into the crowd and we're all like. Really like
1: excited at this awesome insight that is pulled out. I just want everyone in the crowd to hold up like lighters and start swaying their arms. <laughs>
0: yeah, could you imagine if like, you know, this like Mumbrella conference and everyone starts like stamping their feet and clapping at
1: the same time? I would I'd love to, I think if we ever do a live podcast recording with like a little bit of an audience, we should crowd surf. 100%. I'm really, really keen. <laughs>
0: Awesome Mark, I guess um, moving on from that, we can also think about um, how the data can, uh, can impact your insights through personalization.
1: Yeah, so I think, uh, look, personalization is a great sort of leaping off point into discussion of like, we've sort of talked about data, how you get data, how you'd work out what you need, how you'd sort of source it, how you'd analyze it, all of that really great sort of list of how to. And now we can talk about uh, what we can use it for. So uh, personalization is one, and we're going to touch on that in a second. But I think before you even get personalized with, uh, with like consumers and messaging and all that kind of stuff, I think you can actually use this data to identify valuable business opportunities and trends. So back in the day, you might have had some sales data internally to be like, ah, oh, you know, our banana flavored candy, as an example, sells better than our strawberry flavored candy. We should do more around banana or flavors like banana as a really bad example. Mm -hmm. These days, you've got so much data available to you that you can really use these tools to understand trends and then be predictive and then come out with the best um, products designed for those consumers and on those trends. So you can use tools like Google Trends and you can even get notifications uh, from Google Trends on what's what's trending. And you can sort of look at long-term trends, short-term trends. They even have a real-time visualization that you can set as your screensaver which is very cool. So it's like your screen here is is just... Po- popping up with all the words that are being searched right now in real time. You can do it globally or your market or locally, and you can choose, you only want to see the top four or the top 10 or your whole screen filled with it. So really cool way to just understand what trends are happening right now. And I guess those would probably be those short-term trends you look at if something pops up and you just want to jump on it, maybe with a marketing message. There's heaps of ways you can do this. I love this example from the Weather Channel. So the Weather Channel analyzed behavior patterns on its digital uh, and mobile users in over 3 million locations across the globe. And what it allows them to do is to use their data to target in such a way. So you can partner with them and put ads on their app or website and you can target based on humid climates. As an example so if you were selling like an anti-frizz hair product you could target based on humidity
0: that's awesome yeah
1: or maybe you're selling umbrellas (laughs) i really
0: hope the big like the world of the big umbrella (laughs) like they're all in some back room they're like great great we're gonna scrap all our media money and just go for rainy days and the rainy we're gonna try and change the um uh rainy day symbol to like our brand umbrella (sighs) I love that, that
1: would be very cool. Um, Look, so that's sort of an an example of like a short term piece of data trend that you could jump on to to get your product, your message in the right place. And then longer term, we mentioned Google trends. Uh, So if you looked at long term search trends over many, many, many years, which you can on Google, you might see that some searches are starting to increase over time and maybe about to spike. So one that I found uh, recently that's uh, really spiking at the moment globally is um, hemp. So hemp like mm. the, um, like sort of like the leaf product. Uh, so you might look at that and go, great, hemp's on the rise and I need innovation. I might make a hemp derived product. That, mm. That's sort of the trend at the moment. So that's why you could look at the longer term trend to predict uh, like a future business for you.
0: Yeah, super cool.
1: So I think, Moving on from that, uh, what you can do is you've taken, you've got your trends, you've got all this data and you synthesize it down and chosen what's relevant for you. And now you can design products that are gonna delight your customer in the best way possible. And, you know, we talked about sample size up the top. uh, And when you're maybe product testing, back in the day, you might've had to just recruit so many people to do um, product testing. But these days there's so much data available. You could actually do predictive um, analysis and understand what a consumer wants before they even know what they want.
0: So it's a very Blade Runner.
1: (sighs) Yeah, don't get me started on Blade Runner. Um, So what you can do is you could use data sources like ratings and reviews and mine them to come back with what people like and don't like about existing products. So you don't have to go and talk to anybody. You can just get this straight away. You could go to Amazon or eBay or any of those sites that have heaps and heaps of reviews. You can take that and then start to use that to uh, iterate product ideas. The other one you could use is like your consumer call line. You mentioned that that's a great source of um, information. Get the feedback on your current products and use that to improve them. Okay, so once you've identified, uh, you know, what kind of product you wanna create that's consumer centric using all of that data, you can then start to target your messaging about this new product to consumers. And there's there's sort of two ways you can use big data to do this, uh, at least from what I can see. One is predictive consumer journeys. So you can look at uh, where you think the consumer is gonna interact with your product and messaging and start to map out what that looks like for different types of consumers. And then you could like put that into behavioral segments or buckets. So you might say there's this type of consumer who is heavily engaged in this category and they might be using a current product and sort of on auto like top up, auto repeat buying the current product. And the only way that they're gonna find about our product is through an influencer campaign that they're gonna see and then be maybe tempted with a sample offer online and then a discount and then they might switch. Uh, so you might make a behavioral segment for that person and then 10 other types of people and then come up with a strategy that's going to get messaging and samples and, and sales to those people based on those buckets. The second way is to get really, really personal and do one-to-one marketing with all of those people.
0: That's right, Mark.
1: <laughs> so so, um, so what you're going to need for this is some personal information uh, data on these guys so you're gonna to need to uh, get that data and then build messages that are directly targeted to that person specifically. It's a little bit more expensive because you're gonna to have to collect the data, which is a whole podcast in itself, but you can collect it through surveys and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then you're gonna feed them with individual messages. It could be EDMs, it could be uh, text messages, it could be using lookalike audiences to build out from that data on Facebook, whatever it is, but that's another way to do it. So. How would you actually do this specifically? Well, first of all, with a predictive, predictive consumer journeys, you would need to use third party data. So you'd need to go and find some data. Um, so like what events triggered a Google search? What searches are being used? What do they read about a topic? Do they buy straight away or do they go into the store? Do they ask questions on Facebook? So you try and connect all these dots and then you can understand to start to understand that journey. Um, and then as we said, for the, the personalized methodology, you need to collect data first. So you could do competitions, sign ups on your website, surveys, all of that kind of stuff, collect all of that data. Uh, you wanna get a nice big sample size of data and then you wanna start building your messaging out to all these different people based on what you know about them because you would have asked them all these questions to get their data. And then you want to send them out with those tailored messages.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think um, while we've made a lot of jokes about um, Blade Blade Runner and and potentially minority important other science fiction movies, um, you know, these are really really cool marketing strategies and I think the 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 cool thing to also remember is that um, there are so many big data privacy laws and um, certifications to make sure that when we are going through this process and because it is so innovative that you're still being really respectful of um, people's privacy and not just by uh, doing the bare minimum, but kind of trying to go above and beyond to make sure you are pulling those awesome insights um, but doing it in a way that is adhering to a lot of the different bri- uh, data privacy laws and standards because um, yeah, just not, not just as marketers but as human beings, like super, super important.
1: Yeah, totally. And this is one that you, if you're going into this space, you might want to just get con- consultation from uh, yeah. a legal mind that has experience in this area. Whilst it can be a little bit of a fee up front often, unless you have a friend that works in this area, uh definitely worth sort of making sure you're all checked out and you're asking the right questions and getting the right sign offs for this kind of stuff because yeah, it can come back to bite you if you don't do it correctly.
0: Yeah, 100%. Um, and that can be from just the very beginning before. If you do wanna go this process, maybe getting that consultation straight away up front because um, it can get complicated very quickly. And, and like you said, the return on investment of that consultation could be uh, really, really worthwhile.
1: Cool, cool. So I'm gonna jump over to uh, how we could use data uh, and AI for creative testing. Very cool. So uh, what I'm talking about here is, and there's a specific example I'm gonna to refer to to make this clear, which is uh, a tool by 3M called VAS. Cool. If you Google 3M VAS, this will come up. And what this is, is essentially 3M have collected a shed load of data of where people's eyes track when they see Content, Mm. So they've done this for for key visuals, for in-store displays, all that kind of stuff. They take that data and then when you upload an image of your potential creative, it applies that um, predictive analysis to understand where potentially a consumer's eyes would track on your creative based on what they know. So what it gives you is instantly, within a minute, it gives you like a heat map. So you upload say a key visual and it will show you where the eyes are going to spend the most time on the heat map. It can then give you like a, um, like a tracking map, which shows like where their eyes will move across your key visual or your in-store display or whatever it is. So this is a really great way to take like a whole lot of data that's built up over time and then use artificial intelligence to help you make creative decisions, mm. which is super cool
0: yeah it's really really cool and like there are so many amazing analytical software um that can help you make calls that sometimes would have been from gut feel that's and that's such an awesome tool to use to um to to eliminate some of that personal bias that we spoke about up front um both conscious and unconsciously could potentially skew decision making from making the best possible decision
1: totally and and to take it a step further, even these days now, there's there's companies that will actually create creative assets using data and artificial intelligence. So you can be super smart about creating something that, in the first place, is already uh, predicted to be successful as a creative. So uh, I came across uh, this week a, a startup called Pencil, nice. uh, and and they have a technology which uh, essentially you upload a lot of images to this computer and then what it can do is take your images as well as other images on the internet and create assets for you and so they can be static they can be gif they can be short video uh, and it essentially uses the the all of the imagery it's seen around the internet and learned to make sure that it delivers you something that people who are looking at it are gonna like. Mm. And it gives you thousands of options and you go through and start like liking some and disliking stuff and then optimizes to your taste over time.
0: Yeah, wow, that's really
1: cool. So you could almost uh, use this sort of huge amount of data uh, and analytics to predict what creative is gonna be best. You can then use that information as well like in a tool like 3MVS to, to test it and then just go live.
0: Yeah, definitely. And when you think about how much content we're consuming online, you know, tools like Pencil will be so exciting because the more content we consume, the more a powerful um, an AI, AI tool like Pencil will get, which means you can create even cooler creative. Um, and it'll definitely still come down to the, the ju- like your personal judgment at the end of the day, but you'll be able to make an actual data-driven decision on your creative rather than a gut-feel only decision.
1: Yeah, totally. So there's heaps that we can do with um, data and in the sense of data-driven marketing. But I guess to exemplify some of these principles, Mark, what about a case study? Yeah, definitely.
0: Um, I think... Uh, you know, there's lots of really cool cloud software style uh, data analytics that are done, and, and you know, so there's, some, there's some amazing mark, Martech stacks out there. Um, but we've got a case study today that's just it's it's quite simple, and and it's a really really cool example of uh, data-driven marketing, almost in its purest form. So, uh, the, uh, the the case that we've got today is from a company called GreenPal and they're kind of like a uh, uber for lawn care service in the us they're a really cool startup Um, and so green power looking to grow their startup of of providing people with lawn care services in the us um and in the past that you know like a lot of startups were doing they were doing a lot of adword campaigns on google um, and AdWords is such a cool uh, platform to use because not only is it, a, is it a really relatively effective advertising tool for, for a lot of small businesses, but the data and analytics you get from running an AdWords campaign can often be an awesome first port, port of call for becoming a data-driven marketer. And the interesting thing is that when they were running their traditional campaign within the the Nashville area, um, they were getting kind of average uh, click-through rates. They were getting around like uh, 10% click-through rate to their uh, traditional landing page, which was okay, but they didn't really have any insight as to what who their core consumers were or how they could really grow that number. And they were trying different things within AdWords to get there. Um, the really cool uh, thing that happened is that the uh, Brian Clayton, who's the founder and CEO of Green Power, then took a step back and went, okay, what outside of AdWords, what other data sources could we leverage to make uh, a, a, an even more informed decision? And what uh, they decided to do was look at uh, different demographic and census data on which were the most wealthy areas within Nashville. They then also uh, overlaid that data with publicly available data on where were the most expensive houses in Nashville mm. that were going up for sale. And they mapped those two just publicly available data sources to figure out where, essentially where the money was in Nashville, um, because they, 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 had the, they had the assumption that if they found uh, the most expensive houses, and, and they overlaid that with people which had uh, the highest income. Traditionally, people with high income and big houses often had—wait for it—big lawns. No, I know. And those big lawns, those <laughs> and those big lawns uh, needed to be taken care of. And uh, uh, Green Power had an awesome way to solve that problem for them. So they took those insights and they overlaid that data with their adwords campaign to then be really specific and target those areas. The cool thing they did in this test as well is that they actually changed their creative um, to actually show that they were gonna be the cheapest lawn mowing service in Nashville. And they had lawn mowing from $20. And they matched that to a unique landing page for these wealthy areas. And the interesting thing was, is that often people that were uh, wealthy, um, and not necessarily wanna be flamboyant with their spending and spend over the top. So by offering also really great value and deal to this demographic, they were able to uh, drive a 200% lift in click-through rate and a 30% lift in their on-page conversion. Whoa. So it was awesome. And it was just from a really simple way of looking at publicly available data and drawing some insight from that. And like we spoke about up front, you know, insight can be an overused term, but the cool thing is that they took the data They took the facts and they took action from that with that really cool insight.
1: Yeah, that's such a cool, like practical case study. Like we can all relate to that sort of small business mentality, but then having the, I guess, the ability to go and find that data and make some decisions that make a real impact. Like 30% conversion rate increase on their homepage is huge.
0: It's huge. And the coolest thing is that they, like we spoke about up front, they just went back to the original problem, which was defining their problem. Um, and the problem they wanted to do was to find their um, the best cord consumer dec- demographic uh, to help take care of their lawns. And by looking at people that they needed that had big lawns and who those people were and overlaying that data um, and going through that process, help them get that really cool result.
1: Yeah. I also love that there's some parallels there between Louis Vuitton's strategy, uh, which is that... It, from luxury marketing ages ago it was like the top the 5% of consumers make up like 80% of sales Yeah, and they just they really pinpointed where their sales were going to come from in that small maybe more wealthy area and focused in on those guys
0: 100% and almost by you know taking a step back and asking those questions and going into that data and, and helping to solve that and being open to it is such a cool approach rather than you know trying to just keep looking at the data and looking at ways to tweak it really really cool our cool stuff and yeah great job to Green Power.
1: Yeah, yeah. Are they available in Australia?
0: Uh, not from my understanding, but we really hope that they um they come over. Um, and when they do, we'll be uh we'll be will hopefully be at a marketing conference welcoming them with some awesome crowd
1: surfing. I can't wait. <laughs> okay. Well, I I found another cool uh, case study, and I know it's a bit of double up, but uh, I just want to share it because this is one that everyone probably knows about, but I never thought about this deeply. And when I read some of this information, I was just blown away with how this company is using data. So uh, the company is Netflix, which most people have spent a lot of time with Netflix. People probably have a pretty intimate relationship with Netflix and it shows because Netflix have a whole lot of data. Um, So just a bit of uh, stats, Netflix has 148 million streaming subscribers as of Q4 last year. That was the latest data I could find. Um, and an estimated 80% of content streamed on Netflix is influenced by its recommendation system, which is all driven by data. So Netflix uses data in two ways. One is for content creation and predictive trends of what shows are gonna be hot, and the other one is the user experience, which I just sort of alluded to there. So content creation, uh, they use the trends that they're seeing to be able to predict what is going to be good in future and what consumers are going to love, which reduces the risk of a show failing and, and not working. So the example here is House of Cards, which a lot of people uh, probably have heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, 2013 House of Cards started the American series, which is, yeah, a real long time ago. Yeah, wow, so that's crazy. Uh, but... Look, unlike many TV industry um, uh, channels, they have a practice of launching a pilot. Netflix does something different, which they invest in at least a whole season up front, which is a huge capital investment. With the case of House of Cards, they actually invested in two full seasons up front, and it cost them over $100 million. Uh, And it was an instant hit overnight with 420,000 reviews on IMDb, ranking it with 8.8 out of 10. Wow, it's crazy. So how did they do it? Well, they had this data, uh, which first of all said that 33 million subscribers had streamed David Finch's movie, The Social Network, from beginning to end. And those subscribers also watched a lot of Kevin Spacey movies. So they're sort of starting to build this Venn diagram of what consumers love. Uh, And then from that, they also had another show on Netflix, which was called, which was House of Cards, but the British version. And that was performing extremely well. And to add up to the top of that, the British version, consumers who had watched the British version uh, loved Kevin Spacey as well and David Fincher. (laughs) So this crazy Venn diagram starts to go together and they're like, hmm, we should do House of Cards, but a new version that's directed by David Fincher with Kevin Spacey in it. And that's what they did. And so that's how it came about. They decided to do it and they just went all in. $100 million or more, two seasons. And it's just performed massively well. So after launching that, they recruited an incremental 3 million subscribers globally, which was a result of approximately $72 million in profit.
0: That's amazing.
1: It's crazy, right? So really cool example of how they started to uh, use predictive analysis uh, to... uh, to, like what content they were going to create. And from there, they now have a 93% renewal rate of first season shows. Wow! So they're really good at doing this. Um, so the second part, as I said before, is user experience. So Netflix has uh, the following data from your usage. So they've got content that you watch, they've got the device you watched on, the searches you've made, portions of content that you've rewatched, the location, time of day and day of week. Uh, and then they have, they blend that with metadata from Nielsen and other social medias. Uh, so they use all of this to make content recommendations personal, make help you to keep watching with keep watching recommendations, things you started, and then also broader content affinity plan. So when when you scroll through Netflix you're getting a personalized view of the Netflix mm. website uh, because of your content that you've watched so really cool example uh, of a company that we all know and love that uses data in a really cool way to drive better business growth
0: absolutely and I think the, the funniest part of that is as you're saying that I'm like you mentioned the social network movie I was like yeah, great loved it great movie he mentions Kevin Spacey. I was like yep loved it and then British House of Cards, yep, loved it. And then I binge watched all of this <laughs> new House of Cards season that's come through. I'm like, wow, I'd definitely been the uh, the target demographic for that
1: one. Exactly. Like it's it's not. It, that's the cool thing with a lot yeah. of data is if it sound if the story makes a lot of sense, it's, it's backed by a lot of really technical data analysis. Yeah. But when you bring it into a story, it just makes sense. Yeah, it's really cool design. Mm. Nice, so uh, Mark, as you know, uh, as marketers, uh, we need to be aware in the world of what's going on outside of our field. It helps us be better at what we do. So what have you found interesting this week? So
0: um, I there's a chef called David Chang, who um, also has a fantastic podcast, but he's a well-loved food personality on different documentaries and, and different forms of media. But he's famous for having a really successful uh, restaurant chain called Momofuku. Um, but he, he's a really, really successful high-end chef, but he, the thing that I found interesting this week is his love of fried Japanese convenience store food. Mm. So, so hear me out here. So if you Google David Chang Family Mart or David Chang convenience store, um, and YouTube is a great source of this amazing information, he is a high chef who has this really amazing passion for uh food from this japanese convenience store chain called family mart um but it's and also it's backed up by another one called lawson's uh, and if you don't know if you haven't been to japan um their uh, convenience store chains all have all have a little fried uh convenience store section and oftentimes you can buy little fried items for about like one dollar right or i i or one yen per se and his passion for it is amazing. So he speaks about this time when he was working as a chef in Japan and he, he spent a lot of his money living off this as his main diet <laughs> um, because it was t- cheap but also because it was delicious. And he, his enthusiasm for it is absolutely infectious. And it's so cool to, to watch these different clips and listen to these different clips of him explaining his love for this food. The thing I love about it is that it's just, it's so accessible. Like we all have those simple food rituals throughout our day or our week that we really look forward to and we really love. And you can, you know, if you can appreciate the highest end of something, you can also be able to appreciate the lower spectrum of it. Um, it's honestly, it's been really, really positive and it's, it's it's made me laugh quite a lot. But it's also made me really excited to go out there and, and try different foods that, you know, maybe I thought guilty for, for loving, but just embracing it and, and going for it and realizing that, you know, it's not, it's really cool to
1: approach serious subjects with a little bit, a little bit of fun and a little bit of silliness as well. Yeah, look, you're making my mouth water. Um, I can endorse both David Chang, his podcast is great. He's just so passionate about food. Uh, I'd say aggressively passionate, Um, but also Family Marts. If you're spending any time around Asia, there's Family Marts, I'd say, is one of your more premium um, curbside uh, convenience stores. So I'm not surprised that their chicken is good because yeah. Family Mart's is the bomb. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, and it, I, I think I love about this is that you have this expert who you thought was supposed to be a figure that was, you know, very authoritative, and sometimes you see people of the likes of Gordon Ramsay and their chefs known for being quite stern and saying this is good and this is bad and if you watch these youtube clips you see david chang as a chef just chowing down on some different tempura prawn (laughs) and curry uh uh, curry pastries Mm -hmm. curry puff pastries and he's just loving it and then you can watch other footage of him you know really critiquing really high-end food in a very serious manner and it's awesome to see that duality of someone who's just Really, not only mastered their craft, but is just a fan of it. Mm. Um, and I, th- I like to think that hopefully we can get to marketing that's in that similar way or no yeah. market.
1: yeah well like the worst marketing just appreciating it for its cheesiness. i love a pun um look no it actually makes me think of as well um anthony bourdain like he i loved how he would go somewhere and have have this super high-end food but then like he loved popeye's chicken yeah at airports he'd always get popeye's chicken and i just thought i love that he's able to just chow down on something like greasy and dirty and appreciate it for what it is
0: yeah definitely um well mark moving on what have you found interesting this week
1: Yeah, I've got a little bit of an embarrassing one. Um, So it's a guilty pleasure I wanted to share in case anyone else was looking for a really guilty pleasure and wanted to try it. So on Spotify, I've been listening to uh, Robbie Williams live at Nebworth in 2003.
0: Yes.
1: So the way I got onto this is that my mum used to play it in the car, um, Robbie Williams' albums, and it just for some reason came across my Spotify feed and I thought, oh, yeah been a while super cool um so the reason i love this is because so the live show is just so energetic like you've got robbie williams who not gonna lie, he's probably on a couple of substances at this this stage. He's he's got a lot of energy coursing through his veins. Really enthusiastic. Very enthusiastic. It's just so uplifting. Like he he the thing is, he's singing amazingly. Like he's hitting all of the notes of all these sort of pop rock ballads. Um, but he's just getting the crowd going with it. Like he's yelling at them, but he's singing really well. So the crowd's electrified. The band, he's got a live band behind him, they're actually really tight. Like there's horns and stuff in the band. It's really cool. There's this like immense patriotism about the concert. So he's like, you know, I love Britain. I love England. And the crowd's like roaring and it just gives you shivers. It's kind of weird. Um, He's, as I said, he's got like amazing voice. His vocal range is actually awesome. And there's this raw energy. Like he's sort of like not shouting, but you can feel that energy behind his voice where he's really pushing it. Um, and, and I think it's just like this moment in time where Robbie Williams was huge. Mm. Like he was like, it was still record days where you're buying CDs and Robbie was selling a lot of CDs. He was just like, he came out of a boy band, got picked up by a big label and just did a few massive pop albums. And I think this is that moment of all of that coming together in live concert where the crowd's just loving him. He's just the best thing ever and he's just going for it and he's at the top of his game. So, and finally, I think, what I realized in reflection is that Robbie Williams has this universal appeal to men and women because it's like the James Bond effect. Like the women in the crowd seem to really like him and kind of like want to be his girlfriends sort or of the thing is the vibe you get. But also the guys, just like there's heaps of guys in the crowd just loving it. Even though Robbie's seen as a bit of a ladies' man, the guys just loving him. I think it's that they kind of identify that they love the life he's living and they kind of want to be like him. it's it's, very cool it's
0: definitely someone or captured at a period of time when they're maybe like at at their peak and 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 doing what they do do best and i guess it's always the interesting thing about a live album you know like oftentimes when you see live stand-up comedy that's recorded or or live music and they and they put that out as as a recorded uh form of content like it is them kind of going and saying this is me at my best and Mm. this is natural in time um, which is always really interesting. And like when you, when you think about um, stand-up, uh, stand-up comedians that you know, they can perform a set over and over again over a really long season, multiple different locations. And there, there does come a point within their tour where they have to pick a city in advance and go, you know what, I think all the jokes are going to land the best mm-hmm. on this day. And I think I'm going to be able to hit all the notes on, on this performance really well. And they go out and they capture it. And it's, um, it's oftentimes a, it's a really cool thing to think about.
1: Yeah, it's, it's also, it goes both ways, right? Because because they know that's the one, yeah. they're going to bring it for that one as well. It's almost like they have this extra little bit of energy they're going to bring to the show. 100%. And I, again,
0: that's why I can't wait for our first live marketing show podcast where we're going to crowd surf, um, pra- praise different data points um, and really bring out a game.
1: Yeah, li- leave a comment on our socials. <laughs> where, where do you want us to do our live podcast? The,
0: the weirder the location, um, the, the better love it (laughs) awesome guys well um, thank you for joining our learning uh, journey this week Um, you can if you like enjoy the podcast leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode
1: thanks catch you next week